Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Thomas Fuller, was the longtime Southeast Asia correspondent for The New York Times. He's now based in San Francisco, but his last posting from the region in February caught my attention. Fuller describes a scene in which he is interviewing the leader of a protest in Thailand when that leader is gunned down right in front of him. And that experience leads him to his conclusion of the piece, which is that a rampant culture of impunity is threatening the region's otherwise impressive gain. We kick off discussing that piece. We also discuss some of Fuller's other reporting from the region, including an incredible story from last year in which he helped track down a boat full of Rohingya migrants stranded in the Andaman Sea. This is a great episode. Fuller describes how he got started in journalism, some adventures from his early career working at the International Herald Tribune in France, and how and why he feels such a deep bond with Southeast Asia. As always, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me a note via Global Dispatches podcast, where you can also peruse the archives and download our free mobile app. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And now here is my conversation with Thomas Fuller of The New York Times. So we're, we're going back uh, almost six years now to a time of great uh, tumult in, uh, in Bangkok. Um, you had a political movement that was removed from power uh, in a 2006 coup, and they were trying to they were trying to make their way back into into power, um, and they were called the Red Shirts, and they were on the streets of you know Bangkok, right in the middle of Bangkok, in the shopping district, the commercial area with all the fancy hotels and um, and you know sort of the wide uh, boulevards, and um, and so they had built um, this uh, encampment uh, with bamboo stakes and. Uh, they they were you know bracing for uh, the military to to come in and and sweep them out, and they were confidently saying that you know uh, we the the people's representatives because they they portrayed themselves very much as you know kind of a a democratic people's uh, revolution. Um, you know we are we are going to uh, stand our ground here. And one of the leaders of the movement, a leader of the of a more militant side of this movement, because some of them were armed, um, was this uh, general whose nickname is uh, Sedang. Uh, Katia is his, is his uh, full name, but everyone in Thailand goes by a nickname. And so he, I was, uh, I spotted him um, in this crowd of protesters, and so I approached him and I said. 
you know, asked him a few questions. And uh, in, the, in the middle of our interview, um, it was dusk. Uh, and, um, he seemed a little bit nervous talking, but, uh, but you know, maybe that's only with hindsight in the middle of the, he was in the middle of answering one of my questions. Um, and, uh, this, uh, this sort of this cracking noise rang, rang out and he just collapsed. Um, and, uh, and then was dragged away by his supporters. Um, and it was, uh, obviously, uh, a bullet that had come from uh, somewhere high up, because it, uh, judging from the angle and and judging from uh, the, uh, the 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 way we were both standing, um, it, uh, it it sort of came over my head and and uh, struck him just above the right temple, um, and like within uh, inches of you, I would presume you're you're, you're just talking to him, interviewing him, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, it's not, I can't say that I, you know, heard the bullet whizzing over my head or anything. Maybe that's, maybe that's something for, for movies more than, uh, more than real life. But, um, uh, sure. I mean, we were, oh, I don't know, two, three feet apart, you know, when you, uh, just as if you're having a, uh, picture yourself having a conversation with someone, you know, how, how close you would stand to them. So how did you react? Um, well, I, uh, I reacted, um, how to say I reacted very slowly. I, I, uh, um, kind of the world went into, into slow motion. I mean, um, I, I saw, I watched him being dragged away. Um, and you know, I think the first thing I did uh, I know the first thing I did was um, was put on a helmet that I was holding. Now, uh, you might be asking why I was holding this helmet instead of wearing it. It was a you know it's a ballistic helmet, which um, uh, obviously would have been a lot more use on my head instead of you know in my hand. Um, and so the first thing I did was I I put the helmet on, but I but I just kind of just observed everything. Um, I don't, I wouldn't describe it as being in shock as much as, um, just, just a little confused maybe. And, and, you know, uh, um, although not confused for too long, it was pretty obvious what, what had happened. Um, and, uh, and then from there, I just, you know, sort of rushed into action and, and, uh, it was a significant event in the, in the development of this whole political movement. So I went and filed, uh, filed the story. I mean, after the, the initial adrenaline rush, after you filed the story, like how did you, you know, process what, what you just saw? Well, um, I, I mean, the first thing I did was, um, called, uh, you know, called a number of people to, to alert them that things, you know, were going, were about to get ugly, uh, that, that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that this protest was now reaching a, a whole new, uh, level that the crackdown was beginning. But in terms of how I actually, um, process the, the event, um, it's hard to, it's hard to describe except for, except for to say that, um, you know, I was with, uh, my, uh, assistant at the time. Um, and what was kind of interesting is that we had very different reactions. Um, she, uh, ran 
very quickly uh, from the scene, which is probably the smarter thing to do. Um, she uh, just just sort of disappeared, took off, and I uh, my reaction was very different from that. I just um, it's almost as if I wanted to absorb everything that I wanted to absorb this, you know, this scene and understand um, uh, what had just happened. And I was just sort of analyzing the scene, but it was, it was, uh, you know, that, and it was also just kind of um, being a little frozen. Um, so you use that uh, incident uh, to to lead your your really really fascinating piece uh, your your send off piece I suppose from your time reporting in Southeast Asia and you arrive at at a pretty I think interesting conclusion um, which kind of ties together a lot of your reporting what over the last decade which is um, that impunity uh, is the one sort of constant among the various places that you've visited and the various um, stories that you've reported, that there is not much justice. Um, how did you arrive at, at that conclusion? Like, what were the steps that you took to, to, uh, to, to come to that, that moment where you thought impunity is what ties all these stories together? Well, I had a moment, I was asked to write this story by my editor. Um, and uh, my my first thought was that this region is is very very hard to you know generalize about it's very it's very hard to uh, extract common themes uh, you have uh, different languages and different religions and different political traditions um, you some countries were colonized uh, you know thailand wasn't some countries were colonized by the english some by the french you have anyway i mean you you, you know this is a a very very diverse um region and so um i i i just got to thinking about what what does this you know region have in common besides you know everyone eats rice um and um it just it's just something that came up again and again um that uh that the it wasn't just impunity but it was an open impunity and i think there's a distinction there with northeast asia with a place like china there i think you have impunity but um the uh, the the the, well, the the potential criminal acts, the wrongdoing, the you know, are are often shielded from view. I mean, you can maybe um, assume that something's happening, but you don't, but you don't see the the evidence out in the open. Whereas in Southeast Asia, again and again, I ran up against this situation where um, you someone would actually display their assets uh, and it didn't make sense you know given the salary that they had uh that they would have those assets or um i mean if you look at malaysia today um the malaysian prime minister um you know received uh 700 million dollars into his personal bank account and he admits that he, he received the money and um at first, uh, you know, he said, well, uh, um, you know, it took him months to, to come up with um, 
um, the reason that this money was uh, transferred into his account, he said it was a donation from a Saudi uh, from Saudi royalty. And then he said, well, um, but I gave most of it back. Um, and, and it's just there's well, so many there's so many questions that, you know, that, that are just unanswered. And, and frankly, no one. You know, no one believes that. Story. I mean, do you think that there is perhaps a, a degree of acquiescence to the absence of the rule of law, the absence of uh, any sort of meaningful pursuit of justice or, or anti-corruption efforts? Uh, because by and large, this region, uh, with a few exceptions, has experienced some pretty profound economic growth over the last 10, 15 years that people are, are maybe willing to look away because things are so much better than they used to be. I think I think there is that to a degree, or maybe I should put it in the past tense. I think there was that to a, a degree, but my feeling now is that maybe corruption and the insidious effects of of corruption are catching up with Southeast Asia. That um, precisely what you know what you're saying. Um, there's you know corruption is something that. In the good times, you could almost justify it by saying, you know, justify certain types of corruption. I've heard this, you know, many times in Southeast Asia. Well, um, a lot of these regulations are onerous and um, corruption helps us, you know, streamline the investment process or, you know, um, you can, you know, to to a point, if you if you do have a. uh, 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 if you do have, for instance, in Burma under military rule in the dictatorship, you, corruption was almost something that um, allowed people to survive smuggling across the border, for instance, because they couldn't get what they needed from inside the country. So in that case, you know, you could maybe justify that. And in the good years in Southeast Asia, you heard a lot of those justifications. But now I, I think that the stagnation of a place like Thailand um, and the difficulties that um, other countries are are having um, can can be you know closely linked to this very deep um, culture of corruption. Um, so before we move on, I did want to ask you about one other story, and it's one that that had a profound uh, you know impact on me when I read it probably like a year and a half ago, which was. You're reporting, I suppose, from the middle of the Andaman Sea, uh, uh, in which you're reporting on waves of, um, of. Pardon me, I don't like to use waves. I don't like to use inundation metaphors to refer to right. refugees. Uh, you're, you're, you were uh, referring to um, the Rohingya who are trying to escape uh, Bangladesh to find a better life somewhere else, and and you found a, a group stranded in the middle of the sea. How did you find them? Well, you know. The- this was um, an example of something that um, I didn't really understand. I, I couldn't understand why um, the authorities, with all of their powers, uh, with all of you know the tools at their disposal, couldn't proactively go out and find these boats that were you know stranded out there, which I, I think is happening more in Europe. Um, so the the details of how this uh, actually happened was I was in touch with, um, someone who had received phone calls from a passenger 
on a boat. Now, this was passengers from Bangladesh and Myanmar, uh, and mostly Rohingya, uh, which is you know a Muslim ethnic minority, persecuted minority that straddles the border between those two countries, Bangladesh and Myanmar. Um, and so, I I was in touch with this person who. Um, had received what we can really call distress calls, uh, you know, saying they had run out of food and, and fuel and water, and they were drifting in the Andaman Sea. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we were desperate here. Um, so I went to the phone company. It was a, it was a, a Thai number. They must have somehow had a uh, must have procured, you know, this Thai SIM card, this Thai uh, telephone account. Um, and I went to the Thai telephone company and I said, here, you know, on, on humanitarian grounds, can you use your cellular uh, technology to track the location of this boat? Because these people are stranded. And so, you know, when you have a cellular phone, it, uh, the signal can come from either uh, several different towers or ways to triangulate within a, a reasonable distance, um, where, where this, uh, signal is coming from. Um, so the phone company initially resisted. And, uh, so I went through, a uh, a naval officer, a sympathetic naval officer, uh, from the Thai Navy who, uh, who, uh, uh, uh ordered them, basically. Thailand is run by the military these days, ordered them to uh, divulge the location. Um, and then a funny thing happened. The the um, se- the senior officers, his uh, superiors in the Thai Navy, um, told him that uh, he could go uh, find this boat, but that he couldn't take along, you know, the New York Times. Um, and so um, I uh, basically rented a, a, uh, a tourist speedboat, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and went and found the boat myself. Um, and what did uh, you the, see? What did you find? Well, we, I, I went, uh, with, uh, with a BBC, uh, crew, we split the cost of this boat and, um, we, it was, you know, we didn't have the precise coordinates. So in the distance we saw, um, a, a boat that was uh, that you know looked like the description that we had been given uh, a green boat with um, kind of a makeshift uh, uh, sail uh, and as we approached uh, we saw very very desperate people I mean um, malnourished um, and uh, and crying out for crying out for help and we had we had brought uh water and other uh and food that we uh we pulled alongside the boat and uh and you know uh, uh handed over actually threw onto the deck onto their deck as much as we could there were there were children on board there were a lot of women on board um and uh and there were people who were you know really um looked like they had been in a in a camp, you know, uh, for, for, for a long time, they were, they were in a very bad way. Um, and so we got there before the Thai Navy, the, the Thai Navy, uh, uh, arrived, uh, after us and, and, uh, and then, 
sent them on their way, gave the gave these uh, refugees enough food and water, and then just uh, uh, didn't quite push them, but certainly um, uh, encouraged them to leave uh, Thai waters. And then they, they found uh, shelter eventually across the Malacca Straits and in Indonesia, in Sumatra. Yeah, I mean, that was just such an, an incredible story. Um, I remember, actually, I think I did a podcast episode about the situation at the time, inspired, of course, by the story. Um, so I, I'd love to, to switch gears now and, and just kind of learn a little bit about uh, where you're from and, and how you got into journalism and how you became interested in, in global affairs. So where are you from? I'm from uh, Tuckahoe, New York, uh, which is a suburb of uh, New York City. I was born in... Is that Westchester County? It's in Westchester County, yep. yeah. I grew up in Danbury, uh, not too far. No, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So up the uh, uh, up the the Sawmill Parkway. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and uh, up the uh, the the Merritt. Right? The Merritt yeah. Parkway. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I uh, you know, Tuckahoe is a, a marble mining uh, town um, that uh, that today is very much a, a suburb of, uh, of New York City with with commuting families. Um, and from a very young age, I, I uh, went to uh, Europe uh, often, almost every summer. My, my mother is French and her family uh, uh, are, are scattered around France. So I had that exposure to uh, uh, things international from a very young age, and I'm, I'm bilingual, uh, French, English. Um, and uh, I um, went to a very fancy uh, prep school, Rye Country Day School, um, in uh, which is right near, even closer to where you're from, mm-hmm. uh, right along the border with uh, Connecticut. Um, and uh, I... Uh, what, did your, step- what did your parents do? My, my father is the judge of Tuckahoe, New York. Uh, and my mother is, uh, a a French teacher, um, a tutor and, and a teacher. Um, and, um, you know, we had, we had this uh, international connection, but it was very much a, uh, it it was very much, uh, an American upbringing with, with, uh, you know, American expectations of going off to, um, to college, applying to, uh, safeties and reaches yeah, and well, you know did, all, well did all, your did your, your your dad the lawyer expect you to fall in his footsteps and become uh, a lawyer yourself i don't i don't think i think he he saw from a young age that i didn't i didn't have the disposition for that um nor did i really have maybe the the grades i wasn't i wasn't a, a very serious uh student um in uh in in high school um, and I ended up taking a completely different path. I, I uh, told my college counselor that I wanted to apply to only one school, and that was in France, uh, to which she replied, uh, what is her name? Um, <laughs> and I said, uh, no, no, I just uh, you know, want to try something different. And, um, and that's what I did. I, I, I went off to France and which um, school? went to the American University of Paris, uh, which is a, a lovely, very small um, college most of the classes are in english although not all uh and you're just uh, you know paris is your campus there are buildings scattered around the seventh uh arrondissement and um i'm trying to say that with an english accent with an american accent but um and uh, uh i uh spent uh, four years there uh which uh, i wasn't sure I, I would do but um i uh, almost, I almost want to say I didn't graduate from there as much as I graduated from 
from journalism because I, uh, while I was at college, I uh, worked for the International Herald Tribune. Um, from the age of 19, that's the, you know, that's the old, uh, in, back then it was the New York times and the Washington post putting out this wonderful, um, digest of, uh, American journalism, the daily paper. And it's based in, in Paris, if I recall, right? That's right. Based in yeah. Paris, been based in Paris for, you know, more than, more than a hundred years. Um, and now it's been taken over and it's the international, uh, version of the New York times. Mm-hmm. But, um, so that's how I got my start. I, I worked there at the, uh, fresh, uh, fresh age of, uh, 19 and, and, uh, haven't really, haven't, I certainly haven't left journalism and I, and with the exception of two years, haven't really left the, uh, New York times, uh, group. So what, what kind of stories were you covering, uh, back when you were 19 at the IHT and what, about what year was this? This was uh, 1989. I started in, a good in, year to be in Europe. A great year to be to be in Europe. As a matter of fact, yeah. What stories was I covering? Well, this is very much pre 9/11, and uh, uh, I, uh, you know, looking back on it, um, the in in 1989 when um, when the wall was coming down, I. Uh, I decided, well, I have to go and witness this in, in Berlin. So um, I got on a, I booked, uh, booked an Air France flight and, and uh, you know, headed out to the airport. Uh, this is, you know, before the days of low-cost uh, airfares. And, um, and, uh, and I got to the, got to the uh, X-ray machine uh, about to board the flight. And I remember the security officer, the security guard saying, um, you know, sir, why, why are you traveling with a hammer? Uh, and I said, well, it's for the wall, you know, I'm going to take this wall down. Um, and, um, pre nine 11, he said, uh, then go ahead, be my guest. <laughs> so I bore, I boarded the plane to Berlin with a large hammer in my carry on bag. And he made it. Did you, do you, you still have a piece of the wall? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is a, if this is a commentary on my disorganization, but I brought back several pieces of this wall and uh, I'm not exactly sure where they are. They're probably in a box in my parents' house somewhere. Uh, so, I mean, did you report on that in any official capacity or are you just there to witness history? I, I reported on it for my, for the American University of Paris newspaper. I, I was working at the, at the IHT at the time at the Herald Tribune, but I, I wasn't a, I wasn't a reporter. I was a clerk. Uh, and so it was, you know, and, and frankly, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for the big time. So, um, so it was, uh, it was very good experience and I, uh, you know, what a fabulous, um, what a, what a fabulous college experience to be studying. I was studying political science and I was, you know, in the learning a lot more outside the classroom than in. Uh, so, uh, what was your, your kind of first big break then in, in journalism? Like what was the your first kind of big stories you look back on and you think that that was where you kind of cut your teeth? I guess I guess the 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 break was um, sort of heading out to Asia, Southeast Asia. Actually, my first time this this latest decade was the second time I was there. My first time was um, the Asian financial crisis of uh, the late nineteen nineties ninety seven ninety seven right yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, I, uh, I left the IHD for two years. Uh, this was the only time that I didn't work for the 
you know, the, the uh, New York Times group. Um, and I went to go work for another paper in, in Bangkok. Uh, and it was before the crash. And the, the paper was highly leveraged. It was a Thai media mogul who was trying to um, establish a, a regional Asian paper. It was called Asia Times. And it was a lovely group of people. Uh, it was a, uh, a fabulous experience. But um, the paper itself was a victim of the of the crisis that was coming. It was uh, highly leveraged and and um, just collapsed on its in its own debt, which is of course what happened to in a larger sense to Thailand and uh, Malaysia and all the all the countries uh, around it. You know this famous uh, the Thais call it the uh, Tom Yam Goong crisis after the famous uh, spicy lemongrass soup. Um, and um, so uh, I think that was, you know, that was certainly um, uh, the, that was certainly my uh, introduction to a big story and to following a big story. And I, um, I immediately switched over, switched back to uh, working for the Herald Tribune. Well, so I, I got to say, I don't understand that, that metaphor as a, a frequent eater of Thai food uh, and, and a, an enjoyer of, of that particular soup. How, how did they come to that metaphor? Well, I'm not sure. I think it's just a very glib way of saying that the Thai market crash, that you know, that that this this market contagion, because it started in Thailand and spread. Um, you know, they, they, I think it's just a very glib way of saying it started in Thailand. And what do we associate with Thailand? Well, tom yam soup. But um, the the Thais got their revenge in uh, 2008. Uh, during the housing meltdown, and they called that the hamburger crisis. <laughs> there you go. Um, I mean, how did this crisis, though, in, in 97? Obviously, this like a, had big, profound global implications. I remember, you know, it, it was sort of markets around the world were sort of uh, reeling from it. Um, but how, how did, like, an ordinary Thai person experience this, or did they experience this in any sort of meaningful way? Well, it's interesting, because I think, uh, I think in many ways... That crisis was kind of the opposite of what people are feeling now in many countries. That crisis affected the rich almost, you know, dis- disproportionately. Um, it was um, a, a banking crisis that affected people who had borrowed a lot of money. Uh, it was the owners of companies who saw their, you know, their companies collapse. Um, and uh, there was enough work to go around in the years that followed. Um, the American economy is doing well, and the American economy helped pull the region out of this crisis. That uh, my, my recollection was that um, the the big capitalists of Southeast Asia were the ones who who saw their fortunes tumble, and you know there was a there was a market in Bangkok of it was called the market of the formerly rich, and they they had you know Mercedes there, S class Mercedes, and they um, you know and it was um, uh, all of the over leveraged um, elites who uh, you know could no longer hold on to their luxury belongings. Whereas, um, you know, middle-class people were also hit by it, but, uh, but it, it was, um, 
it was in some ways uh, more of a financial crisis than uh, than than uh, than a depression, you know, that that, that sort of affected everyone, because it, the the region recovered fairly quickly because there was the. You know, if you were out of work, you could go home to your farm, and then a few years later, you would you would have a job again. Um, so, how long did you did you spend there in total? I, I guess does like the Times rotate people through regions, like a, like almost like a Foreign Service officer would would rotate between different countries based on interest and experience and expertise. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the first time around, I was uh, with the IHT from 1997 to 2001, and then I was transferred to Brussels uh, and Paris until uh, 2006, and then that's when I started back in uh, Southeast Asia. Were you covering like NATO and and whatnot and, and the EU from from Brussels? Uh, NATO a little bit. I, I was covering uh, mainly the EU. Uh, I was the I was the EU correspondent, uh, and it was an exciting time. It was when euro uh, coins and notes were being introduced. So you know, the, I, I can still picture the the euro notes coming out of the ATM machines for the first time, and and the EU is expanding from fifteen countries to twenty five. So I made a point of uh, you know visiting just about all of those 10 countries, you know, to welcome them to the, to the EU, you know, places like Malta and the Czech Republic and Slovenia uh, and Poland. Um, so it, that was a, it was a terrific, a terrific time. I mean, Brussels is a bit dry uh, and they, you know, just like in any very bureaucratic place, they, they speak a, a language that is not um, penetrable or understandable to mere mortals. But uh, but, uh, but the actual, you know, being out in the field and, and, uh, and seeing, um, and seeing these countries entering the EU is fascinating. No, I, I hear you on that. As someone who is sort of in the UN milieu, I, I can certainly relate to, uh, learning a new acronym almost every day. And I've been at this for like 10 years. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, very, very much based on acronyms and kind of it's it's its own uh it's its own sort of universe of of logic almost so were you in east asia or were were you in asia or were you in in brussels on on 9-11 on 9-11 i was in malaysia um and i was on the phone with uh with my then fiance uh and we were uh discussing um, our honeymoon plans, um, and um, w- she was in a bureau uh, in Paris because she was uh, posted to Paris, and she said, "Wait a second, uh, I'm seeing something very strange on the TV here." Um, and we got married in New York. Uh, uh, 11 days after 9-11. So um, it was very much uh, this this horrible tragedy was sort of very much mixed with our, um, well, with, with our much happier, um, the start of our, of our new life together. Uh, but, um, and then from there, uh, we went, uh, we went uh, to Brussels and Paris. Uh, so, at what point then did they send you back to to Southeast Asia? 
in in 2006, which which turned out to be um, quite quite good timing. We had uh, one person in Southeast Asia at the time, um, and uh, they decided, uh, or I should say, agreed to allow me to go back. I really wanted to go back. I, um, I it's a part of the world I I, I really love. I I uh, um, I have a. It's just such a. Uh, diverse place, but also, you know, as I think I mentioned in that, as I wrote in that story, it's just, uh, such a charming, such a charming part of the world, such a, um, you know, a place where you, you feel, you feel welcome in so many of these countries you feel, uh, and journalistically so fascinating, um, uh, the, you know, the range of, of languages and cultures and foods that you encounter. Um, and it was good timing in 2006 because, um, they weren't sure that they wanted two people there, but, uh, then there was, uh, uh, the military coup of September 2006 that um, kind of uh, made everyone uh, forget that debate. Uh, it was necessary to have uh, two people there, uh, and um, so uh, the, the the tumultuous decade that Thailand has experienced really started as as soon as I arrived. And 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 do do they sort of rotate you out, or do you ever feel like burned out? Is that why uh, you left? I mean, what went into the decision to 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 leave and and take up your post now in in San Francisco? Well, you know, I wasn't. I certainly wasn't uh, burned out. Uh, with hindsight, uh, I I think you know it was good to it, it was good to start to climb a new mountain but what went into the decision was basically just a uh, yeah, a rotational tradition uh, matter of fact 10 years is is quite long uh for to be in in one post usually it's more like um four or five six years uh but um so yeah it was nothing more than um, than just uh, uh, you know, sort of keeping keeping the blood flowing in the in the organization. I mean, are you itching to to go back or, or go somewhere else abroad? I'd love to. Uh, I, I mean, right now, I'm, uh, you know, just arrived in San Francisco, a place that um, is uh, fascinating right now because of uh, because of this uh, surge of wealth and the, all the issues that that um, brings to the city and, and, uh, I'm a, you know, East coast boy. And so the West, the, the West coast is, uh, something exotic to me. And, and it's now been 27 years that I've been outside of the U S. Um, and, uh, being, being back, um, you know, is, is, uh, <laughs> is exotic. I, is this, this it may, is. I agree with you. San Francisco is is like a foreign land to me. I was there uh, this summer for the 70th anniversary of the UN. You know, like the UN charter was signed in San Francisco. Right. right. Uh, and so, you know, Ban Ki-moon and a whole bunch of like UN reporters kind of flew out there. And yeah, it's it's it's, it's a foreign land to me. Um, but, but thank you so much for your time. I, I don't want to keep you, uh, much longer. Uh, anything else we should look out from you? Any, any other uh, stories in, in the, anything else you'd want to plug? You want to make sure listen, listeners kind of tune into? Well, there's uh, there's nothing else coming from Southeast Asia, as far as I know. Uh, the, so that was that that story that you referenced uh, the uh, 
the reflections of uh, on ten years in Southeast Asia was uh, was indeed a, a kind of swan song, um, and uh, now I'm just getting started in uh, in San Francisco. And it was great. I'll, I'll post a link to that story on on the website for sure. But uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Thomas. This was this was great. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Thomas for speaking with me, being so open about his experiences in his career and uh, just for being an incredible reporter. I've been following his work for a long time. All right. So uh, just a quick note, the podcast is audience. The number of you out there who are listening has been growing so, so rapidly, so quickly for the past couple of months. Just thank you for being a continued listener of this podcast. If you are a new listener, as I suspect many of you are, check out our older episodes. There are lots of great older content that is pretty evergreen. You can listen to these conversations at any time and they should be relevant and interesting to you. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.